Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. The passage of scripture from the book of Exodus, the third chapter. Familiar story, but listen to it carefully. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering." So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. First 12 verses of the third chapter of the book of Exodus. There is no question that this is one of the most important chapters found anywhere in Scripture. It came to me this week as I was reading in my regular pattern of reading Scripture. And I was reminded again of what a mountain peak it is. It's very easy to say that After Genesis 1 and 2, which tells the story of the creation, and Genesis 3, which tells the story of the fall and the banishment of man from the immediate presence of God, and Genesis 12, where God called Abraham to leave the land of Ur and to follow him and to become the father of a people that would produce the Savior, this chapter comes next in importance. It is a mountain peak in the story of God's dealings with the human race. But it is a mountain peak not only in Scripture, it is a mountain peak in human history. If we had the time today, and if we were to turn to the scholars that are on the faculty here, they could let you know 
something of the shadow that Moses has cast across all of the centuries since that day. Because the course of human history, as we see it recorded in the stories that come out of the Middle East today, were determined in great measure by this man and by his life. If you hear a news report today on what has happened in the Supreme Court, you can count on it that more than any other single human influence that led to that institution and to its legal system, more than any other is the man Moses. Or if you look at the religions of the world, you will find that Christianity and Judaism and Islam, they stem from here and were profoundly influenced by him. So you can easily say that when God meets man, no matter where and no matter how anonymous or private the circumstances, there is the potential in that meeting of God and any human life for something that will transform the course of all of history that is to come. We see here the power of one, what you might call, isolated human experience of God. Can one day make a difference in your life? Can one hour make a difference in your life? Can one quarter make a difference in your life? We know that in this instance, one hour in the life of Moses changed the course of human history. But who was this man who stood and saw a bush burn and realized that it was not being consumed And with the kind of curiosity that is natural to people like you and me, he turned to see what was taking place and found more than that for which he looked. He was a man who came from a religious tradition that was related to you and me. You will remember that when God spoke to him, he said, I am the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of your father Isaac, and the God of your father Jacob. He was a man with a religious heritage, the Judeo-Christian religious heritage in its earliest formation. That was part of his background. You and I stand at a point in human history when it is infinitely richer than it was at his point, but he was the heir to what there was at that moment of what you today stand as heir to. But he was a person for whom, as far as we can tell, that's what it was, a heritage and a tradition. It was one which he accepted, but which had never really come alive to him until this moment. There is no evidence in the biblical story of any direct personal knowledge of God by Moses prior to this hour. But now, in this moment, when the bush burns and God speaks, tradition comes alive. And heritage becomes real, and it becomes a part, not of his memory, and not of the data which he has been taught, but it becomes a part of his own personal experience as God and Moses meet, and Moses is transformed by that meeting. And perhaps the second thing ought to be said about him. He not only was a person with a religious tradition and a religious heritage, which he accepted, but it never become alive to him, but he was a person who had tried to be faithful to that tradition. But when he tried, you will remember his attempt entered in failure. You will remember that he left the courts of Pharaoh and went out to find his own people, the Hebrews, who were slaves, 
and he identified with them and saved a Hebrew from the hand of an Egyptian who was persecuting him. And then you will remember the next day he tried to mediate a problem between two Hebrews. And the end result of that was that he became an exile. The Pharaoh chased him out of Egypt. And here he was on the backside of a desert in a very desolate place because he had at least had tried but had failed. And it was to this man who at 80 years of age looked back upon life and felt that he had missed it, that God came and told him he was just ready to begin. Now, what was the essence of the experience that he had that day? God stepped out of the shadows of racial memory and came into the forefront of his own personal, immediate consciousness. God in confrontation with Moses so that now there was no legitimate way for him to escape it. God now, not an idea, nor a memory, nor just simply the heritage of those who had gone before him. But now from this moment, he was a God whom Moses knew. I remember many years ago hearing, I think it was E. Stanley Jones, told about the university student on the West Coast who had sat through a Christian emphasis week in a university, and he responded to an invitation, and the counselor asked him to pray. And his prayer ran, O thou great hypothesis, I fear that my conclusions in life are wrong. Wilt thou straighten me out on my premises so that my life conclusion can be right? God here, an hypothesis. And life to be a syllogism, to be put together, understood and put together by him. But Moses, at the end of this day, has to say, I have met God and now I know him. But it was not simply a case of him coming to know God. The beautiful thing is that we find here something about the God who came to him that day as a savior. Not a syllogism, as the university student thought, but a savior. Now, what kind of savior? He was a savior who knew Moses and knew him by name. Moses did not know him before this, except by reputation. But now... God speaks and says, you may not know me, but I know you. And one of the beautiful things about our God is that he is the one who is always there before we get there, and he knows all about us when we arrive. So he speaks and he says, Moses, Moses. In these narratives, they are so briefly given that there is no question but that every word is intended by the writer. And so when the writer speaks and gives Moses' name more than once, you can be sure that he intended to say exactly that. Just as in the case of Samuel in the temple, you will remember, or in the tabernacle, you will remember when God spoke and said, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli because he thought Eli was calling him. And Eli sent him back, and God spoke again and said, Samuel, Samuel. And he went again to the old priest, and the priest sent him back. And then God spoke a third time, and in the same way, Samuel, Samuel, just as he did with Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus, when God appeared to him, Christ appeared and spoke and said, Saul, Saul, 
why persecutest thou me? It is a very personal expression to let Moses know he is not talking about anybody else in all the world. But this day, the eternal sovereign God has given his total attention to one poor, defeated shepherd on the backside of a mountain in Midian. And then's when history begins to change. When a person like you or me believes that the eternal God, sovereign Lord of history, turns his attention to a person as insignificant as you are me and says, I have a word for you and I have a plan for you and it's not a word for anybody else in the world. It may affect other people, but it is first of all for you. It is something that is a part of my specific, unique, individual, particular plan for you, Moses, or whatever your name may be. Now, you will note the pattern is in the individual. God wants to change history, but he does not begin it, you will notice, with a nation, and he does not begin it with a group. He does not begin it with a committee, and he does not begin it with a board. He begins it with one individual. Now, that does not mean that God does not use a nation. He certainly did and does. It doesn't mean that God does not use groups. Think of Pentecost. You will remember that human history has never been the same since. 120 people gathered in one place were filled with God's Holy Spirit and human history was transformed. But who were those people that made up that 120 in the upper room? There was a Levi, you will remember, who was seated at his, at his tax collecting desk one day in the Internal Revenue Service, and an itinerant preacher came along and looked at him and said, you're the guy I want, and I want you to follow me. And he did. You will remember that there were two fishermen who were out fishing, and Jesus came to them and said, you are the ones I want, and I want you. Andrew, I want you. Simon, I want you. James, I want you, John, to follow me. In that group were the people who not only knew him in those circumstances, but you will remember there was a Mary who had, whom he had met, who had met him after the resurrection. And there was Cleopas who had met him after the resurrection. And there was Simon who found him by the shore of Galilee as he fished one morning in the darkness. These who met in that group were people who already had had personal confrontation with Christ and out of that came the power that was in that corporate group that met in the upper room. God's most crucial work is done when he gets you alone, just you and him, in confrontation together. Now, you will notice in the story that it says something about him, not only his personal interest in us and concern for us, but it says that he was different from us. You detect it immediately in the way the story develops. God speaks to him as Moses turns aside to see what is taking place. God gets his attention and knows that now he is not confronting a burning bush. He is confronting God, the living God. And God speaks and says, Moses, don't get any closer. Keep your distance. This is not like other personal relationships. It's personal. Because I know your name, and before this story is over with, I'm going to tell you my name. 
And I am a person like you, but this relationship is not like other personal relationships. Other personal relationships may bring you pain or pleasure, but this relationship involves matters of life and of death. Be very careful how you respond to this overture. And the first thing you want to do, Moses, is take off your shoes. Because the ground on which you are standing now, because I am here, is ground, the Hebrew says, of holiness. Our translation makes it an, an adjective and says, because you now stand on holy ground. But the Hebrew is stronger in that he says, you now, because of my presence, are standing on ground of holiness. Nothing else in your life will ever be as serious as the relationship now being established. Moses, it would be be would have been better for you Never to have had this moment if you use it wrong. And in fact, it would be better for you never to have lived if you start this now and don't follow through. We are talking now of serious matters. Why so serious? You will notice that in the text it says, The emphasis is there upon that word holy. Significant that this is the first time in all of Scripture that the word holy is ever used. The book of Genesis does not contain it. And it is found used only when the living God meets a mortal man. And it is found only when he has a background that now it will be possible for him to understand something of what it means. If you take the Hebrew usage, you will find that the opposite to the word holy is the word chol, which is a word for profane, that which pollutes or that which defiles. The Hebrew root chalal means to, to defile or to pollute or to make profane. So that basically what we're talking about now is that which is sacred in contrast to all else. And if you miss the key here, you will have missed the key to life. You will find that implicit in this text, though it is not explicit and you will need the rest of Scripture to interpret, is that text found later, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Because what is the soul that sinned? It is the soul that takes that which is to be pure and holy and clean and uses it in a profane and in a defiling way. It's interesting that here it is first used in the Scripture. Do you know what the last word in Scripture is? Not in the last verse, but in the last chapter. And the ruling concept in that last scene in sacred revelation, you will find that the word there is holy and holiness. You turn to the book of Revelation sometime and notice the last chapter, 22. You will find that you get a scene in which there is an ultimate division and God speaks 
And the prophet speaks for him and says, on the outside are, and then he defines those that are profane and that are defiling. And on the inside are, and he says, now the separation is eternal. That which is unholy and filthy, let it be filthy still. That which is unrighteous, let it be unrighteous still. But that which is Righteous and clean, let it be righteous and clean still. And then, that which is holy, let it be holy still. Interesting that the last, last ruling human concept in history will not be power. And it will not be love. It will be holiness. As I was working on that, I thought, my mind brought to recall a passage in that apocalyptic book in the Old Testament, Zechariah. A little book of twelve chapters where the prophet looks down through the years that are to come to the end of human history. And in the fourteenth chapter in the twentieth and twenty-first verse of Zechariah. And I was not thinking about our immediate context when I turned to that. But I turned to think, yes, Zechariah told us that. Because the thing I remembered was that he said, at the end of history, the bells on the horses would have inscribed on them, holiness unto the Lord. I turned and found and catch this. Interesting Hebrew way of saying it. The prophet says, do you know in that day, the pots that are used for cooking in the temple courts will be as holy as the bowls that are on the altar. And the cooking instruments that are in the families of the Hebrews in the city of Jerusalem and in all Judea will be as holy as those Vessels in the court and the bowls upon the altar. The ultimate line between the sacred and the secular will be gone. And the line between the holy and the unholy will be removed. And all that is there will sing one refrain. Now, do you think that's what the people who built Hughes Auditorium, who built Asbury College, had in mind? They wanted you and me to know, and never miss it, what the final stage of human history will be. The victory will not be to the evil, nor even to the wise. It will be of the holy. Now this God, something else is said about him. He is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Isn't that interesting? He's the God of a man who lived 400 years before. You see, this God is not trapped in the time processes. And he's not a part of the maelstrom that catches us. He stands outside and beyond it. 
And he is the God because of that, who knows tomorrow better than we know yesterday or today. And so he is able to make promises to us, and he is able to keep them. So he says, I'm the covenant God. The God who made a covenant with Abraham, and I will keep my part of that covenant. And now I call you to enter empirically, personally, in commitment into that covenant. He says, I'm not only a covenant-keeping God, but I'm a God who cares. Listen, I've seen the affliction of your people. I have heard their cry, and I know their pain. Isn't that interesting? This is not a God off remote on the corner of the universe. He says, I have seen their affliction. I saw it before they cried. But when they cried, I heard their cry. And before they cried, I knew their pain. Can you express more dramatically God's involvement with you? I don't know what your affliction is today, but he knows. And if you have not yet cried, he knows before you cry. And when you cry, he will say, I have already felt it. I could not think of anything except that priceless song about the incarnation. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. He identifies with us. You know his commitment. You see it in that. And now he commits himself to us to fulfill his promises to redeem us. You know, with this I'm through. Moses with all this, I'm sure was dramatically all, but then God told him what he wanted him to do. And he was terrified at that. There is a difference between awe and terror. And you know, I found myself responding. I wouldn't want to go to the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. I'm not the courageous type, nor the self-sacrificing type when it comes to that kind of thing. But you know, as I thought, let me just give you very quickly a mental turn in my thinking. My first thought was, well, Moses, you shouldn't have been so scared. All you had to do was go tell Pharaoh, I want to tell you what's going to happen. And you, I don't, it's not my business whether you do anything about it or not. But I, God came to me, and you're in trouble. Don't blame me. I'm not a part of this, but I'm just going to tell you what's going to happen. And if you've got good sense, you'll do something about it. But God didn't call him to be a reporter. You know what he said? I want you to go set my people free. He doesn't call us to be spectators. He calls us to take on the bondages of this world and to take them on ourselves in his name. He didn't say, go speak for me. He said, go set my people free. 
And if you go, I will be with you. Now, you know, I'd like to say, God, three cheers, go to it. And I think that's the way Jesus felt when God said, son, you've got some work to do down there. He said, be born? That's a messy business. Live in Nazareth? That's across the tracks. Be a Jew? You know what Jews are like? God says, they're mine. You go. And this morning he's saying that to you. I don't know what the messy business is across the tracks, whichever side of the track. It is. But he doesn't call us to be spectators to the world's need. He calls us to go with him. No, he doesn't even do that. He says he will go with us. And we, with his strength, will become saviors. You have a good day.